Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help you. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. So to save, visit HealthLock.com today. That's HealthLock.com today. Welcome to Unobscured, a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. Theodore Bryant knew where his bread was buttered and who would butter it. He was a member of a prominent Quaker family who had risen to prestige as successful London grocers. The law cut off Quakers from much of British life. They couldn't serve in the military. They couldn't practice law or medicine. But what they could do was buy and sell. And like many others, the Bryant family took to the market with enthusiasm. Starting with a small grocery, their business grew and flourished and expanded. And one of the things their grocery sold, like hotcakes, was the indispensable tool and light source of every Victorian household, the humble match. Whether you were lighting a stove, a pipe, a fireplace, a candle, or a gas lamp, the match was in demand, and the Bryants were ready to supply. Theodore Bryant had seen his family's grocery become profitable, and then, what's more, powerful. They went from selling to manufacturing. After all, it was the Industrial Age. By 1882, the Bryants had a factory in London's East End employing more than 5,000 workers. In a time when many Quakers still found themselves on the outside of the law looking in, the Bryants had risen so high they even had the ear of Britain's Liberal Party. So it should be no surprise that Theodore Bryant had a bright idea. Here's historian Louise Raw. So Bryant and May, as I said, were very well in with the Liberal Party and Gladstone was always being Prime Minister during this period. He's Prime Minister for several different terms. So the ultimate act of sucking up, my goodness, talk about ass-kissing. Bryant and May decide they will build a statue of William Gladstone and they will build it on the Bow Road and it's actually gesturing with the right hand towards their factory. Such humility, you know, this is Gladstone saying, look at this wonderful factory. So they decide they're going to build it. They could have paid for it themselves. They could have paid for a thousand statues themselves, I'm sure, very easily. But again, why would you when you can make your workers pay? That's right. Bryant followed one bright idea with another. 
to pay for his statue celebrating William Gladstone, titan of the Liberal Party, Bryant took money out of his workers' pay. And of course, on the day of the statue's unveiling, he shut down the factory. Bryant said he was giving them a holiday. What he wasn't giving them, though, was their day's wage. And to add insult to injury, attendance at the statue's unveiling was mandatory. All the women who worked in Theodore Bryant's factory were required to be there, dressed to the nines. The street certainly had the atmosphere that Bryant had hoped for. A crowd of 30,000 surrounded the monument. The Bow Road was lined with Venetian masts and a profusion of bunting, while the railroad bridge that crossed the road was draped with red banners proclaiming England's greatest statesman, Gladstone. Leading dignitaries and politicians attended. Gladstone's wife and children, the chairman of the London School Board, and members of Parliament. It even attracted a clutch of lords who served in Gladstone's cabinet or on the Crown's Privy Council. It was precisely the gala for Britain's ruling Liberal Party that Theodore Bryant had planned. What he didn't plan was the response from the women who worked in his factory. They did come in their best clothes, but some of them also had rocks and bricks clutched in their fists. The newspapers would later politely whitewash over the friction by calling it unbounded enthusiasm. But looking back, we know that many of those women hoped their stones and bricks would make some impression on Mr. Bryant's conscience. Whatever their intentions, they were outnumbered by the crowd. But once the politicians and peerage were done glad-handing and proclaiming each other great statesmen, they cleared out, leaving the neighborhood to its residents. And that's when the working women surrounded the statue. Their effort had paid for it, after all. Their lives, their work, their blood. In a moment of anger, some of the women cut themselves and smeared their blood on the monument. Later, when the blood had dried and faded, they came back with red paint and splashed it over the statue's outstretched hand. In London's East End, myths were praised and greatness was celebrated. But like the women around Gladstone's statue, East Enders understood something else that their work had lifted the empire and its loyal bagmen to the heights of imperial power. That price was paid right where they lived, in the East End, and it was paid with the ultimate sacrifice, their blood. This is Unobscured. I'm Aaron Mankey. However they chose to vent their anger over lost wages, the match women still went back to work. After all, if they were furious over a single day's lost wage, how would they afford to lose it all? By 1882, the Bryant and May Match Factory employed more women in the East End than any other company. They were putting other match manufacturers out of business, or gobbling them up. They poured money into advertising campaigns. And in order to keep them operating, the liberal government massaged manufacturing laws to make sure that matchboxes kept marching out their factory doors. Whether it was the Gladstone statue or all the behind-the-scenes glad-handing that Theodore and his brothers, their relationship to governing officials paid off in many ways, big and small. Their factory in the East End had started when a Swedish match factory closed down and the family of grocers lost their foreign source of cheap matches. 
The Bryants decided to bring the operation home and run it themselves from a neighborhood teeming with life and laborers. So they moved into the old home of the British Sperm Candle Company. It was a sign of the changing times. Here's Louise Raw once again. Everything really changes with industrialization. People come in from the countryside, from working in, you know, perhaps on farms or working in a very feudal setup, really, perhaps for the lord of the manor in some capacity. They come flooding into the new towns and cities, and especially London, to work in the new factories. Nothing's ready for them, nothing's prepared. So they just come crowding into London and the rich get the hell out as soon as they can and steam trains of course make that possible suddenly we have new suburbs so you can get out you can come back into London for work and then you can get away from all the dirt and the dust and the disorder of industrialization and you know it's a pretty stinky process industrialization particularly in the East End where you had a lot of slaughterhouses as well it absolutely stank on, on Sundays So they could get out and they left the poor, particularly in the East End, just to get the hell on with it. And get on with it, they did. But like the match women, Londoners were daily confronted with the fact that they were living at the heart of a powerful empire, an empire that made its rulers incredibly rich. But close beside the splendid homes of the bankers and bureaucrats of London's financial center, men and women in the East End were working themselves to death. And it wasn't just the match women who looked at their skimpy wages and thought that something was wrong with that picture. If some gatherings like the dedication of the Gladstone statue brought honor to the government's heavyweights, other meetings were not so flattering, especially when times got hard. 1884 saw Britain in a deep depression. Families like the Bryants may have enjoyed the friendship of the governing powers, but not every working family enjoyed the same attention. And that was bound to end in unrest. Take, for instance, a gathering that was organized on a cold February Monday in 1886 by the London United Workers' Committee. They planned a meeting in Trafalgar Square to cast blame for massive unemployment on foreign businesses squeezing out Britain's sugar refineries. The London police knew that there was some potential for a scuffle, so the commissioner assigned 500 officers to the gathering. Thousands of demonstrators arrived from the East End. Crowds of socialists, led by the likes of Eleanor Marx and William Morris, joined the crowd. Their more simple demand, that the government provide work or bread, had gathered crowds throughout London over the past few years. Fearing that a clash between the two groups would prove violent, police ordered the socialists to carry their red flags from Trafalgar Square to Hyde Park, a mile to the west. They were only too happy to oblige. In their wake, 10,000 marchers took their hunger, their demands, and their pent-up fury through the streets of Pall Mall. But they were met with scorn along the way. Here's Louise Ra once again. The servants of the posh clubs in Pall Mall, you know, the gentlemen's clubs in Pall Mall, come out on the doorsteps and throw things at the poor who are marching past them. They throw heavy glass ashtrays, they throw shoes, you know, they're cleaning the gentlemen's shoes and they get so carried away, they throw them at the poor. You know, go home, what are you doing here? Get out of here. Met with violence and told that this part of London was not theirs to occupy, the marchers returned the greeting in kind. They smashed the windows of the gentlemen's club. They broke into shops and loaded themselves with the clothes on display for London's upwardly mobile. When they reached Hyde Park, the crowd milled for three hours. Some even tried on their new attire, stripping in the open air. 
At least a thousand destitute Londoners weren't done. They knew where the money was. They marched on jewelers' stores, china shops, and wine merchants. Tailors weren't exempt either, nor were perfumers and art shops. But despite all this, the police were nowhere to be seen. In their wake, the crowd left a trail of smashed carriages, emptied businesses, and respectable ladies lightened of their jewels. The wealthy residents of West London were horrified and outraged. In the days of dense fog that followed, rumors spread that gangs were assembling on the outskirts of the city to march in once again. The doors of upscale London were locked. The city was a ghost town. The Times of London called it a disaster and shame such as London has not known within living memory. Queen Victoria wrote to her prime minister, none other than William Gladstone, that if steps, and very strong ones, are not speedily taken to put these proceedings down, the government will suffer severely. The effect abroad is already humiliating the country. The city's leadership, in other words, was disgraced, and much of that blame ultimately landed on the shoulders of London's commissioner of police. In the shattered remains of the neighborhood, he resigned his post. But the Home Office and the city leaders knew that the London poor would not resign their fight. They were still without work and bread, and the marchers and match women were bound to take the streets again. So it was decided that London needed a police commissioner who would know what to do when the locals got restless. They looked for a Gladstone of the battlefield who would understand the way that the policing of London had an effect abroad. Someone who would bring the order of the empire to its tempestuous heart. They looked for a hero. And they landed on a man. Charles Warren. He was a soldier. He was an engineer. He was a man who had already made his mark on history by going underground. His father, a major general in the British Army, made sure that young Charles had a way into the force. After all, Warren's father and older brother were both wounded during the Crimean War of 1854, when Britain tangled with Russia over control of the Ottoman Empire, including the Holy Land. The Warrens shed blood for the sake of the empire. It was their family way. Charles, though, had a penchant for calculations. So when he was just 17, he was selected to join the Royal Engineers. His first orders were weighty ones, too. He was sent to Gibraltar to join the survey of that strategic shrine at the mouth of the Mediterranean. And Charles shone. His detailed mapping of the Rock of Gibraltar and his design of new cannons for its towering height secured the crown's grasp over the sea just as a flood of new ships flowed through the Suez Canal. Making your mark on Gibraltar was one thing. It was an achievement that made Warren fit to serve as an instructor at School of Military Engineering. When the Palestine Exploration Fund came calling and requested that the War Office provide engineers for their work, Charles was their man. And it was the digging that followed which would make Charles Warren more than just another servant of the crown. In fact, in 1867, still in his 20s, Charles had drawn praise from the pillars of British society because he was the man who offered the crown a new look at one of the most coveted and contested places in world history, Jerusalem. The city had been a place where Christian, Muslim, and Jewish pilgrims had climbed the hills to a holy place. But Charles Warren took a different approach. He went under it. Charles had been sent to the Holy Land with a heavy task. Yes, he was mapping geography and taking notes on culture and history. 
But there were bishops and archbishops in the Palestine Exploration Fund who made it clear that Charles Warren's duty was to show the unbelieving world that the Bible was true. He was sent to locate the tombs of King David and King Solomon, to find the ancient city walls, to map the foundations and features of the Temple Mount. In short, to vindicate the trust that the British public had placed in an ancient faith. He and his team of two military engineers took their orders and set out to match the terrain to the biblical text. But Charles Warren wasn't one to make assumptions or to blindly follow orders. In a letter, he wrote, We must go on the principle that we know nothing until it is fully established. Ever ready to acquire ideas and to suspend judgment, we are busy collecting facts and have no time for speculation so long as we can apply to the ground for information. It was the kind of attention to detail and suspension of judgment that allowed him to make headway. In fact, his work was a revelation. Over the next three years on the Temple Mount, Warren sent home a stream of discoveries, beginning with the news that the boundaries of ancient Jerusalem lay beyond the medieval walls that contain the modern city. In fact, the ancient dwellings were buried under 130 feet of rubble and dust. The only way to reach the ancient world was to dig a series of tunnels straight down into the earth. As local officials watched Warren and his team of hired workers disappear into the earth, they worried that he was opening underground passages for the British Army. They started calling Charles the Mole. But it didn't stop him from digging. With torch in hand, Warren brought to light the actual streets of the ancient city and opened up a complicated network of drains and reservoirs. Eventually, it became clear he had carved into the tunnels that the ancient city used to draw water during times of siege. One member of the Palestine Exploration Fund proudly proclaimed the extent of Warren's achievement when he wrote that Charles, and I quote, restored the ancient city to the world, stripped the rubbish from the rocks, and showed the glorious temple standing within its walls, opened the secret passages, the aqueducts, the bridge connecting the temple and town. Today, the ancient water system he uncovered for Victorian Britain still carries his name, Warren's Shaft. And it was far from the last time Warren would be praised in the British press, or by the government. The British bishops were delighted by his work in Jerusalem, but his later campaigns would be even more influential in earning praise from the monarchy. Nothing connected temple and town, or church and crown, like praising Charles Warren. He was given his knighthood in 1883. A year later, he was made a member of the Royal Society. So, when the Home Secretary, Hugh Childers, needed a military man to wade into the rubble and chaos left in the wake of the 1886 riots, I hope you can see why he chose Charles Warren. Here's historian Adam Wood. Warren had enjoyed a hugely successful military career, and he was a skilled surveyor and archaeologist. Um, he had served in Gibraltar, the Palestine, South Africa, and, in e and was in Egypt when Home Secretary Hugh, Hugh Childers wrote to him offering the position of Commissioner of the Met. He was wanted to take the place of the existing uh, Commissioner, Sir Edmund Henderson, who'd been popular since his appointment in 1868, but in recent years had grown out of touch with the growing force in his own men. When a riot took place in 1886 and the Met badly bungled its response, Henderson was forced to resign. And Childers had met Warren four years earlier and was obviously impressed with his no-nonsense attitude. He was exactly the man that Childers thought was needed to restore public order in a time of riots and to bring the Met back into shape. Of course, life is never as simple as that. 
Pleasing the church and the crown was one thing. Policing London would be something else entirely. The aqueducts of the ancient world suited a man with Charles Warren's calculating mind, but mapping the city of London would require an understanding of a very different infrastructure. Because while the kings of Jerusalem designed its tunnels and waterways for the demands of conflict, the builders of modern London built their temples not with stone, but with steel. There was another empire advancing inside the first. It was a technological lacework that drew Britain's hubs of manufacturing closer than ever to its bustling ports and beating financial core. It was the circulatory system of the imperial heart, the British Railway. Even as it carved open fields, towns, mountains, and cities, the railroad became ever more a place where all human life played out. To many, it seemed like advanced industry and order, the straight line drawn through the rolling chaos of a landscape. Civilization made manifest in whirling wheels and richly appointed cars. But the fantasy of the rail as a sign of Britain's advancement beyond human tragedies was shattered in a bloody crime in 1881. In July of that year, a London police surgeon by the name of Dr. Thomas Bond found himself on his way south. He was headed for the railway inn at Balcombe. A body had been carried there, and although the local authorities were examining it, they had called for backup. They wanted someone with experience piecing together the torn flesh of wounds into the evidence required to convict a criminal assailant. So they called Thomas Bond. Dr. Bond was a fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons and a lecturer on forensic medicine at Westminster Hospital. But since 1867, he'd been in a particularly important line of work. He wasn't just wielding his scalpel in the service of London's paying public. For years, he had been using his sharp mind in the service of Scotland Yard, and he had a storied past as an excellent diagnostician. Here's Adam Wood once again. Dr. Thomas Bond was a divisional surgeon attached to A Division of Scotland Yard. He'd been involved in so many high-profile cases since being appointed in 1867. He was called down to Brighton to examine the body of a man found on the tracks in a railway arch, and it was not initially clear whether the cause of death was that he'd been hit by a train or falling from a carriage. The body had been discovered on the tracks of the railway tunnel by a plate layer who ventured inside. What he saw was terrible. The light of his gas lamp revealed the body of a heavy-set man, clearly in his latter years, and he was riddled with injuries. When Dr. Bond examined the body, he noted that the skull was badly fractured. There were breaks that could have happened when the man fell from the train. Violent contact with the ground, Bond wrote. And there was also a jagged, penetrating wound on the left leg, exposing the bone, all smeared with black grease. Bond would later say it could have been from contact with the wheel of an engine. But as he looked more closely at the body, it was obvious that it was no mere accident. Bond reported that a small bullet had been fired into the man's head. It punched in just under the ear and lodged at the spine. The man's hand and face had also been cut deeply with a knife. But that wasn't all. There were a total of 14 bone-deep knife wounds on the man's body. Dr. Bond would go on to say that the wounds on the face must have been inflicted by a right-hand attacker swinging for the throat. All told, it was a terrible litany of violence. Bond established that the man, Mr. Frederick Gold, had been attacked on board the train and thrown from the carriage as it passed through the tunnel. It was just the second-ever murder to occur on a British train. 
When the victim's body was found on the ground, one arm was draped over the face. The remnants of a gold watch chain still hung from the neck. Following that chain was crucial to the investigation that came next. Other passengers on the train filled in fragments of what happened. One man, a chemist, said that he heard four explosions from the back of the train as it traveled from London to Brighton. The sounds had terrified his son as the train passed through a tunnel's darkness. Of course, once Dr. Bond found the bullet in the old man's head, it was clear. Those explosions were the sound of gunfire. The train car itself had its own story to tell. When it had arrived at its destination, the seats, the floor, and the walls were covered in blood. There was blood on the train's footboard, and not just a splash, but a bloody handprint. And fallen to the blood-soaked floor of the car were two bright coins, Hanoverian sovereigns, the poker chips of the day. And crucially, there was a man who exited the bloody car when it stopped at the station a mile from Brighton. His name was Lefroy, and he stepped from the train calling for help. Like the car, he was also covered in blood. It was on his clothes, on his face and neck, and on his hands. The ticket collectors at the station rushed to help, and he told them what happened. While on the train from London, he had been attacked by two men, an elderly fellow and a backcountry bruiser with broad shoulders and a thick beard to match. He was taken to Brighton by the station master, and on the way he described the assault. One of the men had fired a pistol at him. The other had struck him on the head with a blunt weapon. Six gashes on his scalp showed the evidence. The police took his statements and had him patched up by the local surgeon, who remarked that the wounds could have come from an umbrella. If that seemed strange to the police, it didn't stop them from operating according to their normal procedure. Before they escorted him on a train back to London, they searched his belongings and showed him the sovereigns collected from the floor of the train car. Despite having two or three of his own in his coat pocket, he denied they were his. But the station agents had noticed Lefroy carrying one other item, a gold watch. It caught their eye when they saw the stray end of a chain dangling from his boot. When the detectives escorting Lefroy home learned that the corpse had a snapped watch chain around its neck, they sat him down at his London boarding house and started asking questions. What was the number engraved on the back of the watch, they asked him, and he got the answer wrong. His whole story started to sound about as cheap as the worthless sovereigns in his pocket. So that night, the Scotland Yard ordered surveillance on the house where he was staying. Their orders were to not let Lefroy out of their sight. They made a mistake, though. They left just one detective to watch a house with two doors. While the officer watched the front, Lefroy slipped out the back, disappearing into the night. The manhunt for the Brighton Railway murderer had begun. The first thing they needed, of course, was evidence. Any traces left behind that could put Scotland Yard on the trail of the murderer. And in this case, that's what the coroner's inquest was all about. Representatives from the railway company and the victim's family descended on Balcom. They joined a slew of witnesses who would testify before the East Sussex coroner, a lawyer named Wynne Baxter. An accomplished solicitor, he had started his career in his hometown, where his grandfather's good reputation as printer of the local paper, the Sussex Express, made the Baxters well-known. Since 1875, Baxter had practiced law in London. But that wasn't all. By the time the Brighton Railway murder took place in 1881, he had served as the Under-Sheriff of London and Middlesex, and still managed to serve as his hometown's senior high constable and mayor. 
it goes without saying that Wynne Baxter was an ambitious man. He'd only been the coroner for Sussex for a year and a half when the train pulled in from London, saturated with blood. We can only imagine that when the chief inspector of Scotland Yard strolled into the inquest, coroner Wynne Baxter must have seen that he could do far more with his questioning than just establish identity and cause of death for the man found on the tracks. He could also earn his way into the good graces of London's police detectives. The inquest jury under Baxter's command viewed the body of the dead man, who was identified as a retired London corn merchant. They viewed the horrors of the train car. They heard from the dead man's widow. And they were joined by Dr. Thomas Bond, who described in excruciating medical detail the wounds they had seen with their own eyes. As the inquest stretched into a second, third, and fourth day, All the ticket-takers and railway guards who ran into Lefroy described their encounters in minute detail for the coroner and for Scotland Yard. No piece of evidence was too small, and those efforts produced just the verdict that Wynne Baxter expected. After deliberating for just 20 minutes, the jury made their decision. The cause of the corn merchant's death was willful murder. With the evidence collected at the inquest, detectives arrived at a composite picture of the man they were chasing— And that's more than a metaphor. In fact, they had artists sketch the man's likeness to guide their search. But Wynne Baxter wasn't the only one who knew the power of the press. Soon enough, the portrait of the wanted man was published in London's Daily Telegraph, and then picked up by papers across Britain, making history as what some have called the first composite drawing of a fugitive ever to be published in the papers. The details of the case were spread across the reading public, along with some incentive. The Home Office got together with the Brighton and South Coast Railway to offer a reward of £200, the equivalent of roughly $25,000 today. But if Scotland Yard thought this would bring the manhunt to a swift conclusion, they were mistaken. A flurry of tips on Lefroy's whereabouts buried the police forces across the nation. Suddenly, Lefroy seemed to be everywhere, and multiple arrests followed. But over and over, all these leads were dead ends. In one case, a man waving a revolver stepped into the path of two women screaming, I am Lefroy, and fired toward them. The bullet cut the air between their heads, and the man was arrested for the attack, but it was easy enough for detectives to determine that his repeated claims to be the railway murderer were a drunken fantasy. He merely aspired to be the man who captured the attention of all of England. Even the relatives of the man coming forward didn't end the manhunt. The killer's real name, Percy Lefroy Mapleton, had come to light. So did his catalog of small-time cons and desperate pawnbroking schemes. But none of these small glimmers broke the case. It wasn't until a young law clerk walked into Scotland Yard with a lead for Inspector Donald Swanson that things started turning their way. The clerk offered what he knew to the inspector. Lefroy had gone into hiding in London's East End, where he was lodging with a family under a false name. This clerk had it on good authority, too, that the family thought their new lodger was acting incredibly suspicious, boarded up in his rented room. Despite the storm of rumors, Inspector Swanson must have heard something that struck him as a note of truth. Together with another inspector, and adding a constable for extra muscle, Swanson hopped a cab for the East End and the address given by the informant, 32 Smith Street, Stepney. They arrived as evening fell. Perhaps slightly more clever than some of his colleagues, Swanson sent the constable to watch the back door. Then the two inspectors made for the front entrance, and when a woman answered the door, they described why they had come. She pointed to the stairs. 
Lefroy's room was above them. The rest of it was quick. Inspector Swanson bolted up the stairs, leaving the second inspector on guard in the hall. He burst through Lefroy's door into darkness. But there wasn't a struggle. There was the fugitive, pale and thin, sitting in an armchair. I expected you, he said. When Swanson arrested him, Lefroy barely put up a fight. And when the two inspectors searched his room, they found a locked drawer. Breaking it open revealed Lefroy's crumpled clothes, stained with blood and a false mustache and beard tucked away among them. Lefroy's cons, disguises, and attacks had all come to an end. At the trial months later, Inspector Swanson would recall that as they rode back to the police station, Lefroy said to him, I'm glad you found me. I am sick of it. I could not bear the exposure. When he was back at Scotland Yard, Inspector Swanson was greeted by the Director of Criminal Investigation Department, the Chief Constable, a roundtable of senior officials, and journalists scribbling it all down. He had endeavored to the East End, applied his instincts and clever thinking, and had won England's most feared and coveted prize. As a result, Inspector Swanson found his name in the papers alongside others, like the police surgeon Dr. Thomas Bond and the Sussex coroner Wynne Baxter, who had all worked to bring the killer to justice. Lefroy's trial saw Bond once again take the stand and recount the grisly details of the dead man's wounds. The details of Lefroy's crime were pieced together. That he had entered the train, failed to kill his victim with a gunshot to the head, and then hacked at him with a knife. Finally, Lefroy grabbed the gold watch and pushed his victim's body from the moving train. It was a horrifying picture for those who, before, could barely have imagined a railroad car as anything other than a sign of progress. The horror must have been somewhat relieved when Swanson recounted the details of the arrest. The verdict soon came back, condemning Lefroy to death. And it wasn't the last showing for Sussex coroner Wynne Baxter, either. Because just as he had conducted the inquest for the victim, examining the body to determine time and cause of death, well, he would play the same role in wrapping up this case. After Lefroy's lifeless body was brought down from the gallows, the jail surgeon pronounced him dead. When the murderer's body was placed in its coffin, Wynne Baxter stepped forward with the jury and held an official, albeit brief, inquest. The time and cause of Lefroy's death were obvious. The killer had been caught. The law clerk collected his 200-pound reward, the investigators earned their praise from the public, and order was restored and the empire was set right. When it was all over, Wynne Baxter summoned every ounce of his authority and set British hearts at rest. The law had won the day. But peace wouldn't be permanent. Darker things were coming for Wynne Baxter, and for Donald Swanson, too. More gruesome sights would soon fall under the eye of Dr. Thomas Bond, and more impenetrable labyrinths lay waiting for Charles Warren to explore. There would also be more terrible violations against the women of the East End. In just a few short years, all of them would be confronted with a series of horrifying events that would come to be known by some as the Autumn of Terror. In this season of Unobscured, we will come face-to-face with one of the most enduring moments in the history of crime. Just like the statue of William Gladstone raised on the Bow Road, it is a legend and a legacy that was paid for with the blood of the East End women. And it also, like the statue, gave its cast of characters a podium on which to raise themselves. 
Like the Brighton Railway murder, it was a shocking series of events that forced the Victorian world to confront unsettling realities overlooked by the grand visions of a civilized and civilizing empire. And like that murder, these new events would send Scotland Yard on a manhunt that has never been forgotten, complicated and ridiculed at every turn by a sensationalist press. But just because something is remembered doesn't mean it's understood. Understanding requires time, patience, and careful reflection, everything that Donald Swanson brought to bear on his investigations. Through his eyes, and the eyes of the Bryant and May matchwomen, we will follow the tale of violence at the heart of their empire. In the largest city in the world, all the spoils of conquest and exploitation were piled up, and the most volatile elements of a rapidly transforming industrial society were heaped in the shadows to smolder. We will walk into those darkened neighborhoods where history was made in the worst way possible. In this season of Unobscured, we will see the darkest corners of Victorian London in 1888, as they are lit by the blaze of the Whitechapel murders, and the killer at the center of it all. A killer that history has come to know as Jack the Ripper. That's it for this week's episode of Unobscured. Stick around after this short sponsor break for a preview of what's in store for next week. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. 
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. The inspector responsible for Whitechapel told the deputy coroner that none of the soldiers were found with any blood on their clothes or weapons. He ended his statement with a plea that was published in the London Times on August 24th. If anyone had information about Martha's death, please let them know. They had reached a dead end. With that, the inspector responsible for investigating crime in Whitechapel moved on. Literally, he followed Wynne Baxter's example and left London on vacation. The next day, the East London advisor responded with an article of their own. They saw the way that the East End's reputation was looking and they hoped to head it off. A murder in Whitechapel, or anywhere in the East End, was regarded differently from attacks elsewhere in London, say Regent's Park, for example. A murder there would get sympathy from a wide British readership. But let a poor man sin in the East End, they wrote, and it draws the finger of scorn alongside the gasp of horror. After all, fearful readers and the journalists who fed them stories truly believed East Enders were all ruffians. It seemed the papers used every story to reinforce that prejudice, too. If the editors of the East End Advisor thought Martha Tabram's murder was used to spoil their neighborhood's reputation, though, they were completely unprepared for what was coming. And they had no idea just how bad things could get. Unobscured was created by me, Aaron Mankey, and produced by Matt Frederick, Alex Williams, and Josh Thane in partnership with iHeartRadio. Research and writing for this season is all the work of my right-hand man, Carl Nellis, and the brilliant Chad Lawson composed the brand new soundtrack. Learn more about our contributing historians, source material, and links to our other shows over at historyunobscured.com. And until next time, thanks for listening. Unobscured is a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.